This is the Josh Hammer Show. Showdown at the Texas-Mexico border. This is not a showdown between the Texas Rangers and the Mexican drug cartels. It is a showdown between the great state of Texas and the United States federal government. This is being termed by some as a great constitutional crisis. I see some folks in the Twitterati and the commentator class, the talking head class, saying this is the greatest constitutional crisis since the Civil War era, since the 1850s, Dred Scott, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, all of that. In reality, what we have here is not a constitutional crisis. What we have here is a crisis in civics and the lack of ability to comprehend it, and a crisis when it comes to basic rudimentary notions of sovereignty, one of the foundational concepts of our American constitutional order. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four ruling, you had the moderate Chief Justice John Roberts joined by the center-right Amy Coney Barrett. By the way, as an aside, thank goodness for Justice Barrett for coming up strong in the affirmative action cases, coming up strong in the Dobbs abortion case. But unfortunately, this is now part of a pattern of behavior, very much including the COVID-19 litigation during 2020, where she has been less than fully stellar. So hold that thought for the side. We'll come back to that in a future episode. But when it comes to the second Trump term, if we are to have a second Trump term, we're going to have to do better, folks. We're going to have to do better than Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. We need more Clarence Thomases and Sam Alitos. Regardless, this past Monday, Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts joined the three liberal colleagues, to say that Joe Biden's Border Patrol agents can go down there to the border, to the Rio Grande, and cut razor wire fencing that Governor Greg Abbott had the Texas Department of Public Safety, DPS, as is known there in the Lone Star State, to have them put up to impede this unprecedented invasion of literal millions of illegal aliens who have been flooding in to the state of Texas over the past few years. Let's take a step back here. In the late 1780s, after the failures of the Articles of Confederation, when the states formed the national government in the first place, a government, as we know, as anyone who has read Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution knows, is a government of strictly enumerated powers. These states, previously known as the colonies, were the ones who existed. They ceded limited powers to the federal government. It was well understood at the time, in fact, it was uncontroversial, that the states themselves were fully, wholly sovereign actors as well. In fact, the states were sovereign actors before the federal government even was itself. In 2012, we had a major U.S. Supreme Court case called Arizona versus United States that touched on many of these themes. It's one of my favorite writings ever by the late great Justice Antonin Scalia. He's worth quoting at length here. In 2012, in Arizona versus United States, Justice Scalia wrote, quote, as a sovereign, Arizona has the inherent power to exclude persons from its territory subject only to those limitations expressed in the Constitution or constitutionally imposed by Congress. The right to exclude is the singular defining feature of what it means to be a sovereign power. 
In his Arizona concurrence slash dissent, Justice Scalia quoted the great 18th century international lawyer and legal intellectual, Emmerich de Vattel, a Dutchman. And in his 1758 treatise on the law of nations, he said, quote, the sovereign may forbid the entrance of his territory either to foreigners in general or in particular cases or to certain persons. I could go on here, but the point is, if you are a sovereign entity, you have the right to exclude, period, full stop, end of story. Scalia continued further on in Arizona versus United States, quote, after the adoption of the Constitution, there was some doubt about the power of the federal government to control immigration, but there was no doubt about the power of the states to do so. This was common sense. Again, the states were sovereign before the federal government itself even was. Who in the world is Joe Biden to fail to enforce the most basic, the most prosaic and rudimentary of federal statutes in the United States of America when it comes to the criminality of illegally trespassing into these United States. Itself a violation of his Article 2 Take Care Clause responsibility. We'll table that for another day perhaps as well. But for that matter, who in the mind is the United States Supreme Court to dictate to the state of Texas that it cannot take proactive measures to prevent an invasion on its southern border, especially at a time when the federal government is not doing so. You have some people here saying that this is resuscitating the ghost of John C. Calhoun because after the Supreme Court's order, you had the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, issue a defined response declaring a formal invasion and saying that he was going to continue to build razor wire fencing. So you have some people saying, oh, this is nullification. Oh, this is John C. Calhoun. Oh, you can't do this. We fought a whole bloody civil war about this. Well, no, we actually really didn't. The nullification crisis of the 1830s through the 1850s was about the purported ability of states in what would become the Confederacy to unilaterally declare null and void federal statutes. That is illegitimate because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution, which unequivocally declares that federal statutes are superior. But what if you have competing interpretations of the Constitution? Here you have the idea, I would say the correct and accurate idea, that there is a formal invasion as Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the Constitution countenances that states can declare on their own, which would trigger their ability to do exactly what Texas is doing here and to take matters into their own hands. The notion of modern judicial supremacy, which is the idea that the Supreme Court is here, there, and everywhere, the all-encompassing definitive law of the land, is a Modern misnomer and a modern failure to understand Civics 101. It stems from a somewhat obscure 1958 case called Cooper versus Aaron in the aftermath of the Brown desegregation fights, where the Supreme Court simply blindly asserted that it had that power. Do you know who didn't believe that? Who properly understood that the coordinate branches, the Congress and the executive branch, and yes, to an extent, the states have an ability to independently interpret the Constitution for themselves? 
Abraham Lincoln understood that. This was Abraham Lincoln's point over and over again in his debates with Stephen Douglas up and down the state of Illinois in 1858. This is what Abraham Lincoln said in his first inaugural address in 1861 when he said that he would recognize the morally abominable and legally incoherent Dred Scott ruling from three years prior. He would recognize it as it pertains to Dred Scott himself, but he would not take it an inch further and extend it to any other party. Judicial supremacy is wrong. It's also not even relevant here because the actual Supreme Court order is simply saying that Border Patrol can go into Texas and start snipping wire. It has no ramifications for Texas' ability to construct new wire, as Governor Abbott has told his DPS and Rangers to do. There are a lot of failures here, but fundamentally what you have at this level is a United States Supreme Court that is bordering on the tyrannical. This is a Supreme Court, which Hamilton very clearly tells us in Federal 78 is the, quote, least dangerous branch of the federal government. That federal government itself, again, created by the states with strictly enumerated powers. The last time I read Article 1 of the Constitution or Article 2 or Article 3 or any of them, suffice to say, there is no room in there whatsoever for the least dangerous branch of the federal government that itself was created by the state's own beneficence. There is no room to tell Texas to infringe upon and destroy its own sovereignty. In this case, the best response from the state of Texas is to flip two middle fingers at the U.S. Supreme Court and keep on keeping on. God bless the great state of Texas. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's zoom out from the legalese a little bit and talk about what is really going on here at the Texas-Mexico border where you have this standoff, and as of now, we do not know where this standoff is going to end. But let's zoom out and talk about what is really going on here. This is not just a constitutional dispute. This is not just an abstract sovereignty dispute involving 18th century treatises on international law, the law of nations, things like that. This, this is a real, tangible issue. This is a real, tangible sequence of events now transpiring at the Texas-Mexico border, and frankly, which has been transpiring for the entire duration of this disastrous presidency, the presidency of the doddering dolt from Delaware himself, Joseph R. Biden. What is really going on here when it comes to the Democratic Party, when it comes to DHS Secretary Mayorkas's complete seeming inability at best, or you might say zeal at worst, 
to just wave the hand and wave in unprecedented scores of migrants from throughout the world, not just throughout the Western Hemisphere, not just throughout Latin America, the Caribbean, the West Indies. We have data on this. Our friends at CIS, the Center for Immigration Studies, have lots of reports on this. These folks are coming in from literally all over the world. By the way, very much including the Middle East and the broader Islamic world. So what is actually going on here? The Obama administration was not exactly hawkish, was not exactly trying to secure the southern border. But compared to the current guy, compared to the current guy, Obama was actually in a whole different category. So something is really, really going on in the Democratic Party, I would submit, even since the end of the Barack Obama presidency when it comes to the issue of immigration and really what that entails more generally in terms of race, culture, national identity. It's very simple. It is obviously the rise of the woke ideology. It is obviously the rise of an extraordinarily racialist prism, a race-centric way of viewing the world. Critical race theory, DEI, all of these things, intersectionality. You know, back in the day, the Democratic Party, back when it was the more socialist-adjacent party, the party of powerful big labor unions, the party that was actually favoring stricter migration, that was their stance. The Democratic Party for a long time was the party of tight immigration, tight borders, protecting union members, raising wages. That was their stance all throughout the 1990s. Go back and look at the immigration stance of the late Harry Reid from Nevada back in the 1990s. You would be blown away. Harry Reid opposed birthright citizenship for illegal aliens back in the 1990s. He said all this as he said all this as a leading Democrat from the state of Nevada. Crazy how far they've come on this issue. Bernie Sanders himself the communist loonbag who honeymooned in the Soviet Union, who raised banners for Fidel Castro back when he was a mayor in small-town Vermont back in the 1970s. He used to be a restrictionist on immigration, too, because he emerged out of the communist-adoring socialist wing of the Democratic Party before they went down this rabbit hole of wokeism and racial politics and all of this. So even since the end of the Obama administration, even since the 2016 Democratic presidential primary where you saw Hillary Clinton emerge over Bernie Sanders, who was was representing the last vestiges of that Marxist political economy based wing of the party before the true rise, the true post women's march, post Me Too rise of this purely identity, racialist, genderist based wing of the Democratic Party. You've now seen a leftist ruling class in Democratic Party that is essentially trying to expiate, to atone for their perceived sins of whiteness on the global stage. That is really what is going on here. And this is not a conspiracy theory. You can look at the quotes from so many leading liberal intellectuals, from so many of the leading quote-unquote thought leaders, the chattering class, the columnists, the commentators. You can see what they are saying on this. 
they're talking about how they are ashamed that America is still a majority or at least a plurality white country, depending on the jurisdiction. They genuinely do want that to change. You know, it was just a couple weeks ago, Congressman Jerry Nadler from New York City went on a rant from his perch in the U.S. House of Representatives how we need, quote, many illegal immigrants in this country to come here and pick vegetables. We apparently don't have enough people here who can pick vegetables. Jerry Nadler also discussed, as many of his colleagues have, the fact that America has a plummeting birth rate. And the logical conclusion that these midwits draw from these observations, especially combined with their zeal to expiate for the sins of their whiteness on the global stage, is to bring in lots and lots of foreigners, especially those who may not actually look a whole lot like them. Saying something like this, to simply state the obvious, to simply to simply recap what so many leading leftists, the Obama clan, the inner circle there, what they have said for so many years now, to simply say this is to get accused of racism, is to get accused of dabbling in great conspiracy, of, of great replacement conspiracy theorizing, things like that. But that actually is the only way to describe what is going on. How else to look at the take care clause responsibility of the federal government to actually take care that the laws are faithfully executed? How else to look at DHS Secretary Mayorkas? How else to interpret his complete refusal to do anything whatsoever as you have hundreds and hundreds of migrants line up in the high Sonoran Desert in Lukeville, Arizona, flooding the Rio Grande and Del Rio, Texas and Eagle Pass? You have to ask yourself, is it that they truly do not care? Is it simply a matter of resource allocation, of economic efficiency, where they rather just deploy their resources, their limited resources elsewhere? They rather do X, Y, Z things? Or is there really something more going on here? And there absolutely is something more going on here. I will answer the question for you. This is part and parcel of the racialist worldview. Ironically, to go back to John C. Calhoun, this is what we were talking about in the first segment here. It was John C. Calhoun who also saw the whole world through race. Tragically, it is today's leftists who do the exact same thing simply in reverse. Contemporary conservatives properly are colorblind. Tragically, the same cannot be said of our interlocutors on the left. This is the Josh Hammer Show. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So we're here in Oxford, Mississippi with broadcasting legend, my friend Lee Habib. Lee, you were at the Ole Miss-Arkansas basketball game the night before we recorded. You were a big basketball player back in the day. I'm also a huge basketball fan. I went to Duke. I've seen my beloved Blue Devils win two national titles in person. It's probably been my favorite team sport for my entire life. I actually coached my actually coached my brother to a rec league championship back when I was 14, 15 years old. But, you know... Uh, not going to brag about that too much now now my older days. But why don't you talk a little bit about your lifelong love of the game of basketball and how that's continued till this day? Well, my dad had been a ball player. He was the all-time leading scorer at Gettysburg College. He was a great high school coach, became superintendent of schools. He was a history teacher. And so he just sent me to great basketball camps and just drilled me up, taught me how to play, taught me how to be a point guard and how to shoot and how to, how to, how to lead, most importantly, how to lead. Because the point guard is the captain of the team on the floor. He's like a quarterback in, in football. The essential nature of a point guard is, it's, I still think, underestimated, the power of a great point guard. And you've got a lot of them in the NBA right now, and I'm seeing them in college basketball, the reemergence of the great point guard because of the three-point play. The three-point play revolutionized the game, though it took a long time to do it. And so I became an all-county player in a Bergen County, which is a big county, and I did that twice. I was captain of my high school basketball team when I was a sophomore, which had never happened, in, in at least in Bergen County history. So I, my dad had taught me how to lead, how to play, and teach just the skill sets, not just me, but all my friends. So we would drill together. We would play together and we came up together. We had extraordinarily good basketball teams. And then it's just been a lifelong passion of mine because it's, it's like jazz for my money. Basketball is such a uniquely American conception. Basketball, football, and baseball are just, it's remarkable that these things came from this country. Stock car racing is another great American invention and they're uniquely American. Uh, the interesting thing that we were talking before is that Europeans have helped make the American basketball right. game better. Um, and, and that happened with American music, with the blues. I mean, it took Mick Jagger and Eric Clapton and a bunch of guys from Europe to reintroduce the blues to America. But these are uniquely American sports. And basketball, unlike football, which is very regimented, there's not a lot of room for improvisation. But in basketball, it's almost all. You have plays. But the plays don't really end up the way they're designed. They blow up every time. They blow up every time. It's how you play the game. It's how you, particularly for a point guard, how you use the momentum of the other team. If they want to go slow, you want to go fast. If you want to go fast, they want to make you go slow. And it's a lot of will and it's a lot of momentum. So you can be up 15, you get a little cold, the other team comes back and they're up five. And I've always loved this about basketball. It's just a flow game. It's a motion game. It's in motion all the time. The second you start to think you're like not going to miss, it gets a little like golf, where suddenly you can't hit a shot. You can't hit a layup. The team goes cold. Happens in baseball. And then all of a sudden the team gets hot. And so it's just such a fun game. And if you play it right, a Princeton, when they play perfect ball, 
can compete against a team with much superior athletes, which if they, they don't did. turn, which they did for many years. Pete Carrill recruited me, um, and wow. I, I just couldn't stand the nature of basketball back then because the scores were in the 40s. No one took the threes, and it was just such a grind. Now, if you're six foot and you can shoot 45 to 50 percent from three points, they're recruiting you. Right. Then no one cared. Right. Nobody cared. So. You know, sports is not a topic that we discuss on the show very often. We probably should talk about it more because I happen to be a huge sports fan. But it's so applicable for all of life because it's trying to train and inculcate good values fundamentally in young men, especially at the at the collegiate level, right? I mean, so I mentioned I mentioned Duke. I mean, Mike Shashevsky would talk about this over and over and over again. I know that you used to go to the camps for Coach K's own former coach and mentor, Bobby Knight, who had the exact same philosophy. He was not just trying to craft people who would go out on the court and win a basketball game 51 to 49, whatever. He was trying to craft men out of boys, turn boys into men who would then go out there and be the generals, to be the commanders in whatever their vocation, whatever their profession was. So I'm wondering, Lee, you know, as a parent, as a mentor over the years, how this kind of basketball-centric sports mentality of trying to turn boys and girls into men and women, does, does that continue to affect your life today? And my life, and I think the life of communities across the country. Friday Night Lights is a big day uh, and big night all across the country. Home basketball games. And look, the reason people put their kids into sports is, well, manifold and, and multiple. The first is just, you know, learn how to be among others. Learn how to play as a unit, not as a, as a self. And a, and a sole person. Learn to have somebody push you beyond your limits. That's the coach. Learn that there are discipline, uh, th- there's discipline involved, physical conditioning involved. And a, a good coach is going to push you beyond what you thought were your limits. This is a good thing. And it's hard for a parent at a certain point to do that alone. So these coaches became surrogate parents for people who had them or actual parents for all those boys, particularly boys who didn't have fathers at all. These became the father figures for boys. On the show, I host Our American Stories. Our favorite stories are about those men. John Wooden's funeral, the great use of the legend. These men from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Bill Walton to Swen Nader all talked not about the basketball part of the uh, man, but the man part of the man, the father part of the man, right. the faith part of the man. And, that, and, and in the end, that you gotta, you got to give your best. This was the standard for John Wooden, not the win. Give your best, do your best, and don't be selfish. Selfishness was really a cancer, a, a narcissism, a, a, the cousin of selfishness. These were things that would get you riding the pine with Bobby Knight's team or any of these other teams. And I still think to this day, there's a great moment with uh, Tom Brady and David Bettpatrick. It's a beautiful two-hour interview. And Tom Brady was talking about anytime they felt like they were getting a selfish guy in the New England Patriots locker room, they couldn't wait to run him out. Because they want the good news was not only is we not on on their team, but they get to play against a team that had that narcissist on it. And narcissists will kill a team. By the way, they'll kill a family. A narcissist will kill an organization. Totally. And uh, so they, these are the good things that sports teaches. I think it's why we gravitate to them. Plus, there's winners and there's lo- there's losers. There's accountability. And and you can't after a win say we won. And after a loss, you can't say uh, you didn't do anything but lose. So, so the good news is there, there's, there's bottom lines. And there's a lot of there, there's pain and grief after that. But then you've got to look back at the film, figure out what you did, did wrong, and try and improve it. So I, I've just always loved the accountability. I've loved the camaraderie of sports. Yeah. Um, all of it is so beautiful. And it's so American. Americans just love to play. 
And I don't think we, we talk enough about this in, in, in American life and particularly not in, in political life. You, you know, I, I strongly identify with what you were saying there about accountability and the glory of victory and, and, the, and the agony of defeat. I, I do fear, and I experienced this growing up. I mean, you know, when I was playing youth soccer, youth basketball, I, I do fear that we have raised successive generations now of the participatory trophy generation of where you get a trophy simply for showing up. And I, and I do worry about kind of instilling the wrong lessons about lack of accountability in, in, in America's youth. I'm wondering if you're worried about that as well, because, you know, I, I, I feel like back in the day, I mean, probably even before I was born, frankly, I mean, I mean there really was like, like real punishment for, for not winning. I mean, what's the famous quote? That second place is the is, is the first loser. Right? I think I think it was a Dale Earnhardt quote, right? If, if I'm not mistaken, I think he I think he was one who said that. I think that. it is. Um, do you worry about this accountability trend going downhill? Look, there's always been a piece of me where the emphasis was too much on winning. Look, if you do your best and the other guy bests you that day, you shouldn't walk around with your head down because you did your best. This was Wooden's point, but and that's an accountability. The accountability is to do your best. Right. Yeah, there's a win here, there's a loss, but sometimes you're going to do your best and you're going to lose, right. and that's fair. That's not fair. That's fair. But I think the bigger thing is that all my life I've mentored kids, coached kids, and I'll tell you this about the participatory trophy. The kids never buy it. You stick 10 kids in a lot and you divide them up five by five, one team wants to win and the other team wants to lose. Adults tried to push this on right. kids, but I am promising They're not you, buying it. The kids not, not only didn't it. buy it, they thought you were ridiculous. Good. They had no respect for those parents and, and still don't have respect for those types of adults who treat them like idiots. And that's the thing. It's infantilizing young adults who want to be treated like grown-ups. Actually, that's what they really expect. It's what I loved about Coach Knight. It's what I loved about Coach Carnesecca. I was in eighth grade going to their camps. Those guys treated me like I was a college student, and I loved it. I loved it. I hated being talked down to by adults. And that's the real beauty of sports. These coaches don't, you know, if you ever notice with race, coaches don't say to a poor black kid, oh, the poor kid, he's just his mother's on crack. He doesn't have to do well, right? So in the one place where there's no DEI, last night in the Ole Miss-Arkansas game, most of the game, there were 10 black players on the court all the time. And a mostly white crowd, and by the way, plenty of African-Americans and Hispanics too. No one was watching going, oh my goodness, there's not enough diversity on the court. Nobody thought... <laughs> that for a second Great point. And, and, and so that's the beauty of sports Great point. all of that bs is gone yeah. it's a meritocracy one of the last pure meritocracies meritocracies left in this earth and no one begrudges michael jordan for making all that money and a second string sub making 10 times less there's no oh that's unequal treatment and we should level out those salaries so for all those things, these are the reasons I love sports. It's a meritocratic and deeply American uh, way of using our time. And, and that's what we do with our spare time in America is we do sports. Not, we don't run off to museums. It's just not what we do. And I like museums. But the average American isn't thinking, hey, let's hit the Met. No, they're saying, let's, let's hit the kids' baseball game today. And I love that about America, by the way. I love that about America. You know, it was, it was Justice Jackson, the famous Supreme Court justice and uh, former former attorney general of California, who famously said that he opened the newspaper every day, not starting on page A1, not starting on the news section, but starting on the sports section, because he wanted to start his day, not by reading about the humiliating defeats of man, but by reading about the the glory of man and the victories of man, and the shining accomplishments of man. I, I was I always thought that was a real quote that, that really just stuck with me and says a lot about the power of sports. So, you know, Lee, we only have a few... 30 seconds left here or so. Any, any final thoughts about the power of sports to kind of shape our lives? No, just make sure your kids play them. 
and make sure they learn from it. My daughter does, uh, does barrel racing. And what a, what a thing she learns. You're going to fall. That horse is going to throw you. And you need to get back up right away and give it another shot. And so she's learning the most important lesson in life, which is it's risky. You're going to absorb the risk. You know the risk. And you do it anyway. And it's a beautiful thing. I can't teach her that. Barrel racing teaches her that. Lee Habib, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Happy to be here. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's Hammer Time. University of Wisconsin Law School mandates reorientation DEI training. So the students were recently taught there that believing in, quote, colorblindness or rugged individualism, or dare I say, even saying that, quote, people of color can be racist. Apparently, these are itself all forms of racism that should be challenged and perhaps should even be verboten at the University of Wisconsin Law School. This is a fascinating, fascinating window into a battle between raw political power and woke bureaucrats in higher education. So the state of Wisconsin, at least at the level of the legislature, is still quite conservative. Unfortunately, liberals took over the Wisconsin Supreme Court last year. That was a huge, huge election that I fear could have tangible ramifications for the 2024 presidential election if Wisconsin is very close later this year. But the legislature is still controlled by Republicans. And recently they passed very strong legislation there that would force the flagship university right there, the, the University of Wisconsin, to wind down its DEI bureaucracy. And as many publications like the Wall Street Journal have reported, they actually have done exactly that. So the, the University of Wisconsin is slashing its DEI bureaucrats, what what Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute very aptly refers to as the quote diversity crats. University of Wisconsin is cracking down on that. And in turn, actually, they're even starting a new taxpayer-funded center for center-right thought. So the contrast here is between what the legislators in Madison are saying and what the leaders of the law school there in Madison are doing. This is setting up some sort of grand clash. And it really does shine a prism on something that has been a leitmotif of this show ever since we launched it a couple of years ago which is in a situation like this, to my fellow conservatives, where you hold political power in a state capital like Madison, Wisconsin, you have a responsibility 
You are the people's representatives. You have a responsibility to effectively wield that power if need be to shape the culture and to tamp down the excesses of civilizational arson. To translate that into very concrete terms here, where the University of Wisconsin Law School is mandating reorientation DEI training, that is wholly irreconcilable with what you are simultaneously trying to do to get the broader university to cut DEI bureaucrats. This is something that should not legally survive. It obviously is morally abominable in the, in the extreme. The notion that, quote, people of color, the notion that simply saying that somehow people of color can be racist is itself racist. I mean, this is obviously just the Ibram X. Kendi, justify racism on grounds of anti-racism and grounds. You guys know the spiel by now. This is disgusting stuff. The point there is that Madison, the state legislators have power. They ought to wield it to gut this utter toxic nonsense from our public discourse and our way of life. On a similar note, in my state, the state of Florida, the Florida bar is getting rid of its diversity and inclusion committee. So the Florida Supreme Court directed the state bar of Florida to remove funding for diversity and inclusion from its upcoming budget. This would be a perfect example of what I just said, which is actually using political power in a state where you have it to implement cultural change in a healthy salient direction. That is exactly what is happening here in the state of Florida. It is a it is great news that the state bar Florida is gutting its DEI committee. It raises the obvious question as to why there ever was a DEI committee in the first place. Unfortunately, I have to assume that most state bars have some sort of committee along these lines. In fact, I know that the state bar to which I belong, the state bar of Texas, I actually know that the bar of Texas has all sorts of woke, idiotic nonsense as part of it because I actually was a plaintiff suing the state bar of Texas a few years ago. That case was ultimately resolved at the level of the Fifth Circuit. We will see if it ultimately gets to the Supreme Court in future years. But good for the Florida state bar. Hopefully other state bars in states where Republicans have a supermajority in the legislature, like we have in Florida, hopefully they will continue to follow suit. Religious nuns are now the largest single group in the United States. There's a new study from Pew Research When Americans are asked to check a box indicating their religious affiliation, 28% now check none. So this has been a rising trend for a very long time. That's been a rising trend for 20, 30 years. There are are two ways to look at this. They might seem like they are in some sort of tension with one another, but there are two simultaneous trend lines going on. One is that you haven't had a necessarily massive, massive decline in the percentage of Americans who actually say that they do not believe in God. Now, you have had a decline, for sure. The percentage of Americans who believe in God now is is certainly lower than it was 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. No doubt about that. But the decline is not as stark as some people sometimes might think it is. But you do have this rise of people who are not religiously affiliated with a formal house of worship, whether it is a formal Christian church, a Jewish synagogue, or something something else. One possible explanation for that is that the younger generation, the millennials, the Gen Zs, even those who do still profess to believe in God, who still do profess to believe in some sort of lower O or lowercase O orthodox conception of a monotheistic faith, one reason for that is that they're simply not finding a good fit for it. Now, interestingly, when you actually look at the sects of both Christianity and my own faith, Judaism, that are both going up and down over the past five, 10 years or so, what you see 
is that is the more theologically conservative, the more orthodox strands of both faiths that have seen absolute explosions in, in, member, in new membership and people coming to the pews and people congregating, congregating in prayer to find community, to find a sense of, 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 uh, of family and obviously shared faith towards, towards God Almighty above. You see the exact opposite trend when it comes to theological liberal strands of both Christianity and Judaism. Now, you do have... A, a slight increase again in the percentage of Americans who claim to be atheists or agnostics. But I think, honestly, the biggest explanation for this, above all, would be that you have a mismatch, a mismatch between where young Americans in the Gen Z and millennial class are trying to find a home and the house of worship that are on tap available to them. To me, when I see data like this, this actually strikes me above all as something of a supply and demand problem. We need more authentic houses of worship to get younger people into the pews, stop identifying as nuns, go with those authentic houses of worship. Major Cornell donor calls for President's ouster over anti-Semitism and DEI. So it's one of the largest donors to Cornell University. He's pulling his funding to the school and calling on the president of Cornell to resign as Cornell continues to embrace DEI. So Cornell University has has a massive Jewish population. It is roughly 25 percent, give or take, on an annual basis of the university. They have had all sorts of horrible incidents there at Cornell ever since the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, 2023. You had a, 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 a professor there by the name of Russell Rickford who gave a speech in New York City about a week or two after the slaughter where he was unambiguously praising Hamas. He was saying that, that he was happy, that he was celebrating as they went about their task. You had during finals period while students were just in the library trying to study for finals there in Cornell University back in in December, you had so-called pro-Palestinian activists, I would call them anarchists and anti-Western civilization misanthropes. You had them just marching through the library, holding signs, saying all the usual sloganeers, oh, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, intifada, globalize the intifada. So yeah, it's really bad at Cornell. By the way, by the way, have you noticed that it is these elite institutions, the Cornells, the Pens, the Harvards of the world that have these massive problems? You know what universities do not have problems like this? Alabama, Georgia, Ole Miss, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, where I'm actually broadcasting this show from. These major public universities where you have good God-fearing Christians, you know, funny, you don't actually have these problems there. Where you have these problems is in these overly secular oftentimes disproportionately atheist or agnostic, far left, higher upper income echelon Ivy League schools. Curious how that works. Finally, Oregon County Axes diversity office that costs nearly $1 million a year. So the officials here in Clackamas County in Oregon, they're dismantling their nearly $830,000 a year DEI office. This is despite the outcry from some who are opposing these initiatives. Oregon is a fascinating state. It is obviously a very blue state when it comes to most statewide elections. There are certainly many deep, deep red parts of the state there. Portland has been ground zero of the cultural revolution for a long time now. As anyone who saw the fire bombings, the federal courthouse, the horrific incidents of vandalism and property destruction back during the, the summer of love, shall we say, the summer of 2020. So good for the officials there in in Clackamas County. Again, DEI more generally seems to be an issue that we on the right are winning on. We are winning on DEI. We are winning on ESG. Fight the left with fire on this. We are in the right. They are in the wrong. We are a colorblind society. 
That is the way it is. They want to see race. We should not let them do so. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.